Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We've all at some point or another been faced with a code migration in the past and wanted to share some of our things that we've learned. In this episode, we are joined by Micah Ransdell, who probably dealt with a few migrations in his past, uh, to talk with us about his learnings. Micah, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Uh, sure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you guys all uh, inviting me out and uh, having me on your show. Uh, I'm uh, Micah Ransdell, engineering manager at Netflix. I work with Ryan and Ryan and Jem uh, on the acquisition UI team. Uh, I've worked uh, kind of all over the stack here uh, in terms of um, both on the front end and back end of the front end on our website and across many different layers. And uh, currently leading uh, engineering team here. Um, my favorite beverage is an old fashioned. Right on, same here. All right, well, let's also go around the table and introduce today's panelists. Ryan, you want to start it off? Sure. I'm Ryan Inklom. I'm a software engineer here at Netflix. Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Legacy. 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 So I'm sure this word will come up often, so it might be a fun episode. All right, well, let's jump in and talk about code migrations. I'd be really curious, how do you all decide when is the right time to do a code migration, or even if it is a good idea? The second a hot new framework comes out. <laughs> I figured that was going to be the best answer. We should switch on a daily basis, basically. I think the announcement of hooks, you started immediately right after that, right? No, I think as a team, you decide you have to weigh the costs and benefits of doing it versus not doing it. And it's generally when as a whole, you feel it as an engineering structure, you feel the pain points of the older code or the older framework or the old way of doing things and you decide, hey, we need to upgrade and migrate all of this code. But there's there's no hard and fast rule on it because it really depends on how your code is structured originally, your team philosophy and all sorts of other things. I like that you said it's weighing the benefits or really figuring out the cost of doing it or talking through that with your team. I think also sometimes what are we missing out on? It maybe is, you know, jumping on that hot new framework is what is it getting us that we don't have today? And is that something that we really, really need and would help make our lives easier, maybe ship faster or make a better user experience? So when we talk about code migration, can we someone give examples of what exactly we're talking about? Oh, that's a good, good point, Jim. Uh, I have a good example. We're in the midst of one now. Uh, Ryan can attest to this. OG Ryan can attest to this uh, in the sense that we are uh, migrating our TV platform from an older uh, custom framework to React Redux, uh, you know, very hot now. Um, so it's, you know, that decision wasn't taken lightly in the sense that um, part of that decision matrix was really around business value as well as developer value. It kind of sounded like it was because it was a new hotness, though. I'll let Ryan answer that. <laughs> um, no, actually, for the, the TVI migration, it was actually a relatively easy decision uh, when you started looking at the benefits because we do share a lot of code amongst other teams here at Netflix. And some of those other teams were starting to move ahead with a more React Redux architecture. And the acquisition application was still on a older home-baked JavaScript framework. So the farther apart those two code bases got, the harder it was to share code, to get updates, 
to you know just get the most recent things that uh, some of the other teams are pushing out there. So it was a, it was a relatively easy decision when you when you think about it. Uh, and another one we recently had was uh, migrating not only the locations of our tests to be in line uh, with the the files that are being tested, but we migrated from um, uh, Mocha and sign on and all that to jest which was a fairly substantial migration and again that that there's a lot of discussion a lot of back and forth a lot of pros and cons being weighed against doing something like that but yeah those are examples of code migration i, I think getting back to your point gem too is it is likely moving away from one direction to the other maybe replacing a framework replacing some old legacy code with new code cheers cheers, cheers. All right. So once you've decided to migrate to a new code base, how do you approach that? Obviously, just start coding from uh, square one, uh, (laughs) just line by line. I think that's the easiest approach. Uh, No, obviously, there's a fair amount of planning. I think it depends on, you know, what the goals are of that migration. If it's really to just test it out, then you might start with an MVP uh, to at least get you an understanding of what what the capabilities are and, and all the work that would be required to get there. But uh, there there should be a fair amount of planning, at least, you know, in larger migrations. Um, you have a lot of inputs, you know, as Jen was talking about with the uh, testing side of things, there's a lot of folks that are bought in and they need to be um, kind of understood and, and uh, taken care of as part of that migration. Yeah. I think this question ties in actually really well with a, a tweet I sent out last night and that's a don't enter the gym without a plan. Um, and I think, you know, before you start a code migration, you need to define your plan or your goals up front. What is, you know, what are you trying to accomplish out of this migration? Are you going to make a, an easier developer experience? Are you trying to have a smaller package size overall or, or things like that? So having a, a plan before you start any code or any um, architectural decisions is, is really important. I 100% agree with having a plan going into it. I think too often, or I've experienced it in past Ryan's life is I've had it where you just jump on it and and not, don't really think about that. And to me, it's really bitten us in the ass by taking that approach. I like the planning aspect too, because you can also hopefully bring everyone on board because I think that's important too, is that you're all on the same page of how this migration is going to work and even what the motivation is, I think is really important for everyone to be bought in and understand what we're trying to achieve. And I, so I think that gets really back at the planning stage of really outlining those details up front. I would also say breaking it down into smaller chunks so you can get your head around it. I think uh, very often it's easy from an engineering perspective to just say, hey, we, we got it. You know, we understand all the the nuances here. Um, but as you dig into especially more legacy code. Cheers. Uh, yeah, Cheers. I know how this works. Part of that is the more you can break down tasks and the more you can get a better understanding, the less uh, unknowns that are out there and, and more kind of chance of success. I like code migrations because it's where you separate coders from engineers. Like anybody can code. Uh, you can go on Stack Overflow and copy paste. And God knows we've all seen some really atrocious websites where people just copy paste it everything. And it's, it's just a mess because, you know, JavaScript will let you do whatever you want. But engineering like real engineering like architecture things like that happen in code migrations where exactly like uh og ryan and mike are saying you you have to break it down the smaller problems understand the pros and cons but also you have to understand the entire code base as a whole and how people interact with it how um i don't know micah is an expert at foo framework or something like that and we lose all the expertise by migration by migrating to a new framework and we have to all have a new learning curve and like all sorts of things go into this that to me is like 
this is engineering. It's it's not sexy and it's not fun because usually it's like when everything goes right, everything works exactly the same. No one even notices that you did anything if you do things right, which is the unfun part of, I think, what a lot of people want to do. They want to build new shiny things rather than rebuild the old things. But that's, in my opinion, and every company I've ever been to, like that's where the, the real meat of the work is for engineering. Yeah, especially for the TVI migration I'm on right now, I think up front, I spent so much time planning and thinking and writing docs and not coding. It felt like I really wasn't getting anything done just being a, a coder because I like to code. Um, so just getting away from that, you know, feeling like my, my value is in producing code versus my value is in planning and figuring out how all these pieces are going to fit together uh, was, was a little interesting transition. I have an interesting question for you all too is, you know, we talk about having this old code base and we're moving to some sort of new code base and, and maybe something like replacing Mocha is not the perfect example for that because you might be able to just replace that under the hood a little bit easier. But maybe it is moving your complete direction and for this TVUI example to React and Redux. How do you go about supporting the old code base where there's new work from PMs coming around? How do you manage that expectation with them or do you build it in the old code base and the new code base like how do you juggle two code bases at the same time for us you know for as a manager uh, managing expectations of, of partners is is part of the job and i think understanding what's most critical to the business uh, and factoring that in as part of any migration is important so you know if there's some uh, business business objective you know for us uh, we had we were in the midst of a product kind of roll out um, when it came to how we were doing signups for TV. And obviously stopping halfway through wouldn't have been great for our partnership with our PM, who was really excited about that rollout. Um, so, you know, balancing, hey, we're going to continue this. It'll cause this other, you know, the migration to slow down. But, you know, we're happy to take that trade off in order to fulfill your business needs with the given the give and take of now we're going to, you know, once this is done, we're going to go focus on this and you're not going to get anything from us for a little while. So being really explicit about that and then making sure that everyone's bought in. I think that's important is the buy-in and also being very explicit up front. I have made the mistake years ago where I was trying to juggle two code bases where it was like, hey, well, we'll just slowly migrate or build this new code base in isolation and and still support all the the features and everything coming down the the pipeline i see micah shaking his head he knows that how painful that would have been and and honestly impossible. It, just, it was impossible it, i don't think we ever finished it, it just became a moving target that we were never ever able to complete so i always think about it is yeah how can you manage expectations and make sure that you buy yourself time to focus on the migration but also maybe you can build some of the pieces on the new uh, framework or, or new code base. Like maybe you can support directing traffic to the newer side of this website if, it, if that's the case, where you're building a new feature with the new code, but still supporting the old. I think there, you just need to really think about that goes really to OG Ryan's point of planning up front is be thinking about how are we going to support two code bases? Where do we make the trade-offs and, and really be thoughtful around that? I think the important thing is if you aren't able to make the case to your partners or whoever is depending on your platform 
for either a pause or a shift in focus for for that older legacy code base. Cheers. Uh, Cheers. Yeah. Without that, uh, you're not clearly uh, enumerating and and you know communicating the needs for that migration. Um, because that's part of making sure everyone understands the the value for the business of this migration, and you know, from the technology and from the business perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not just because it's new, and this is what we want to be doing. <laughs> I think it takes working with partners who understand uh, engineering, and just as product engineers need to understand the product at some level, the the product managers and designers and all the responsible parties need to understand engineering. And like really what we're talking about is, I'm surprised we haven't said this yet, but we're talking about technical debt. We're talking about paying off technical debt or avoiding future future technical debt. And the organizations that function well understand what technical debt is and understand, hey, by not doing this migration, you're going to end up paying the cost two years down the road, three years down the road. It's going to be much, much higher. So we can do it now or we can do it later, but it has to be done. And the organizations that I've seen that don't function well, the ones that are like, just build it, just build it. Like, we don't care. Like, we'll we'll pay it later and you always pay like that's the thing with technical debt you always pay the debt just becomes bigger and exactly. bigger and it's more just expensive like to pay loans. back yes <laughs> you can't avoid them you, you can't can't go bankrupt on them you just you gotta pay uh yeah certainly part of being an engineering manager is um maintaining and, and managing that relationship over the long term of talking with the pm talking with your business partners about uh, this new feature you're wanting or this new thing you're doing that isn't allowing us to pay down this technical debt or, the, or you know, explicitly making that trade-off, it's going to come back here. And then when you get to that point, you know, kind of enumerating all the reasons why you need to do this migration is a great fuel for that and makes it a lot easier to have that conversation. One comment I had about tech debt is one interesting thing I've noticed in every migration I've ever seen is the tech debt actually becomes a quadratic function over time. Uh, as you start a new project, your tech debt is zero. Everything is great. You're you're writing code. It's beautiful. It's clean. You know you're not repeating yourself. Functions are are very well defined, well named. Tests everywhere, and then you get to that launch date, and you're not quite there yet. So then all of a sudden, uh, compromises are starting to be made, and so tech debt does happen on a migration as well, and it gets bigger and bigger the farther and farther past that original launch date you get. I don't think I've ever seen a migration where that didn't quite happen. I like that you said that too, because I think it's so important when I think of doing a reset to, by doing a, a migration, it's so important to build a strong baseline. And so cutting corners on the migration sounds like a terrible idea because now you're just setting yourself up for debt right from the get-go. Now we can ship a lot of great new features on top of this amazing code base that over time will start to degrade and then two, three years down the line, it's let's talk about the next migration. But I feel like that will happen a lot sooner if you are already cutting corners in the migration. So I think it's really important to spend as much time up front on that uh, migration rather than cutting corners. We've now about to ship our nice brand new code base. How do you measure success on that? Are you looking at metrics? Like what what should we be thinking about if we're upgrading our code base? I think it's something you should set out at the beginning, you know, in the sense that uh, before you uh, start your migration, it's what are we gonna actually uh, measure this as a success with? So is it improved TTR, TTI for your application? Is it uh, improved core metrics? You know, for us signups are, 
more revenue? Is this something that's going to drive uh, faster development time? So, you know, measuring and, and um, being able to quantify how much development time features take. Um, all those are, you know, useful metrics, but I think you really have to pick one or, or two and then really stick with that or else it can make your migration extend because now you're changing focus or, or adding new complexity to your migration. How do you quantify developer productivity? That's such uh, a hard metric. Yeah, no, I, I you know, there, there's a, um, a qualitative uh, part of that in the sense that, um, you know, talking to developers, getting their um, feedback and, and, you know, kind of general feelings on how the code base um, is reactive to them in the sense that, if every time they go in to make one little change, they end up spending hours making that change, both on understanding the context of the code or um, understanding where all the different systems they need to touch in order to influence this line of code. I think if uh, you don't kind of take that as a signal to start, you know, whether talking to people or sending out a survey or something, um, you won't be able to identify on the other side of, hey, are these things easier? You you identified these as problems before of, I would go in and make a single line change and it would take 10 hours. Um, you know, if you don't identify that at the beginning, then you're not going to be able to ask that at the end of, did this solve this type of problem? Yeah, I think that's, it sounds like even on whatever metric you're identifying, it's really important to identify that in that planning stage so that you're not chasing a metric that doesn't exist. I think another important thing that's not directly related to measuring the success is um, resist the urge to change the UI during a migration because when you are measuring the success, even a tiny UI change can muddle up the, you know, what you're looking at. So if uh, the migration isn't successful, it's all of a sudden really hard to tell if, if, if it's the migration itself or if it's that one little UI change you made during the migration. So, um, you know, I think it's really important to keep the UI as close to exactly the same as you can, because then you're measuring two applications that are exactly like against each other. And it's a lot easier to tell if it's an architectural change that's causing the redness or, you know, just I changed one word on a button. You just never know if that's the reason that the, the change is, and it's a lot harder to reason about. Right, so it's really decoupling engineering and design. It's like let, we're, we're making engineering changes mm-hmm. at this point and really focus on that. I think to make that a little bit more generic, you know, in Jem's example of uh, migrating the test infrastructure, you're obviously not changing a, a UI at that point, but you're controlling the variables that you're changing, either only changing... Uh, the test runner uh, at one point or the infrastructure for mocking or something like that. Uh, so controlling those variables and being very explicit about the ones that you're going to be tweaking is probably the, the main takeaway. Well, and even to Ryan's point, being more focused on, it sounds more focused on a product, which you even yep. mentioned looking at these the old and new code base and measuring the success is you're also talking about almost you're running those as an A-B test. You're you're saying that running these two in production and really testing this against users. I mean, that's something that we've done often at Netflix and I'm very thankful for it because you don't want to see your core metrics go up or down. Being very flat is probably a good thing uh, for the most part. You want to actually be able to understand what's not working and what's happening and 
oftentimes you can do all the QA work and have all the perfect written tests, but you're not catching everything until it's in production. And so I think that's another thing. If if you have the ability to A-B test, I think A-B testing the two code bases is a really smart idea. Another point of us, we've kind of talked a lot about the benefits to maybe why you would want to migrate. I'd love to get into what is the most difficult points of doing the migration because no one can say a migration is easy. I, I would be surprised to hear someone say that. So I'm, I'm curious on what's difficult about a migration. To me, migrations, again, to the, my point of um, like where serious engineering comes in is you really see all of the, the warts on your code base. You see the inconsistencies and patterns uh, and you try to plan around that in the future. You say like, hey, here's a bad pattern that we see. Um, we want to fix this in the future. And you're like, cool, but you could introduce another bad pattern and trying to foresee that like years out is really, really difficult. That's why like the highest, often the highest position in any software company is architect or something like that, because it's their job to think that far out and think like what are upcoming trends and patterns, things like that. So like trying to predict up uh, like where, where the company, where the business is going to go is another difficult thing with uh, migrations. And you can say like, Hey, all of our, we migrated to this new framework and it's, it's totally in memory. That's cool. It's it's running really fast. Then in the future, it turns out your bottleneck's actually the database somewhere, and like none of your code migration accounted for that. Sorry, I'm getting like too technical, but things like databases. that are wow. uh, what are those databases? <laughs> things like that can make a migration difficult. Um, but I'd say the primary one is the engineers themselves. We are our own worst enemy in that you have to educate people on the new framework or language or whatever thing you're migrating. Uh, and then all of that knowledge that they had is now not worth anything. And you have to re-educate everybody. And I wouldn't, okay, it's not worthless, but it's not as worthwhile <laughs> in the in the new code base. And that's always been the harder part is educating developers on the new patterns, the new structure, the new architecture. That That's usually the most difficult thing. I think expanding on that a little bit is getting engineers to agree on anything. Um that's been the most difficult thing I've I've noticed so far. So you can come up with a, a pattern you think is great. You share it in a room of two engineers. It's still great. Three engineers, it's pretty good. And then 10, 20 engineers, and you've got, you know, 15 different opinions on how it should be done. And, you know, reducing that and taking all that feedback and knowing when something is good enough to move forward on uh, is, is a really tricky problem. I would say uh, perfect is the enemy of done. In the sense that it, you know, when you're when you are trying to plan for some of those um, future business needs, or uh, you know, correct some past mistakes in terms of patterns that are introduced in the code base, it's very easy to spend a lot of time trying to over-engineer or or even you know engineer to a point where it's bulletproof for you know those business needs. Um, and very often, it's better to just be done and then uh, iterate on it and have some planned kind of um, obsolescence in, in the sense of knowing that we don't have perfect information now. Uh, we never will, but we should be able to be adaptable to the new information we get is more important than trying to plan for all those use cases. Another thing I wanted to add a little bit off of what Jem said in a little different lens is you said it's difficult to understand where the business is headed or where your team is headed, those types of details. I also think it's sometimes hard to understand, especially with new tech, where that direction is headed. We talk a lot about open source frameworks, uh, whether, especially in JavaScript, like 
React, Angular, Ember, whatever it is that your team is adopting, is it's also hard to know what's going to happen with that framework. How long is it going to last? What's going to change in that? I don't know what the right answer is, but I think it's really doing some investigating and trying to understand what the life cycle of that framework is. I think that's really important rather than just jumping on the bandwagon because it's the hot new thing. All right, so before we get into picks, I thought it'd be good to also maybe leave every listener with one amazing piece of advice. If you were to redo a migration today, what's one great piece of advice that you would leave our listeners with? Make sure you have tests in place before. Migrations are one place, again, where like engineering is separating from coding in that you may not believe in tests and you may think their value is questionable, but when it comes to migration, you'll see the value of tests where the thing that you're trying to do, you can just find out if it works or not, like without having to run through the entire flow and not having to, to push it in the prod. Uh, tests have made migrations like so, so much easier. I, it's it's like a hard lesson to learn over the years, but um, that's a probably one piece of advice I would give. I'd also say, sorry, two pieces of advice. Uh, yeah, question why you're doing the migration, like make sure everybody's bought in. Because if, uh, like OG Ryder was saying, if the engineers themselves aren't bought in, then it, you're just going to be like pulling this anchor the entire way. But if everybody agrees on the new patterns, why we're we doing this, what success is going to look like, and you're not just doing this because you saw someone gave a talk at React Conf or Angular Conf or whatever on the the new thing, then uh, you will be much more successful, and you don't won't be chasing just like the latest greatest thing. Jim, when you mentioned tests too, do you mean I've got my legacy code base? Cheers. 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 And then we have this new code base. What if the old code base doesn't have any tests? Are you saying that I should go back and write tests for all the old or I should focus on having tests for the new? should focus on having tests for the new. But ideally, you'd have tests at the... Even if you don't, you're migrating from, say, Java to Python, at some level, you should have some sort of integration tests that don't rely on the underlying code itself. It relies on just how it communicates with outside systems. And that is the easiest level of testing to do. And then for UI, you have NN tests, which again, don't care what language you're running under the hood. It just cares that it does the thing it's supposed to do. I would say my advice is don't do it. <laughs> uh, Are you better, Micah? <laughs> no, I, I think that, um, you know, there's a, should be a high bar for any migration. And so um, initially starting off being skeptical about uh, making that migration or, or is it worth it from the business perspective is always the kind of um, better way to put yourself in a frame of mind of like, is this really necessary? Um, but, uh, you know, and in, in honestly, I would say have a plan for um, exit, you know, in the sense of uh, knowing where you're going to end up and how you're going to get there and then where might your stopping points be if, if you find out this isn't going great or uh, things need to take a turn in the sense that maybe business needs shift or the technology needs to shift. Um, don't be married to that idea or, or um, the path. You know, have some other plans. So my advice is small pull requests. Um, try to limit the amount of code that's changed in a pull request, especially when doing a migration. Um, you'll get a much better review on things when you only have a couple files changed and a, not a ton of lines. If you have 100 files changed and tens of thousands of lines of code, you're not going to get a very good code review. Uh, people aren't going to actually try to look and understand the patterns that you're trying to uh, migrate to. So try to make your pull request as small as possible and you'll get much better feedback. That was really good. I like that one. 
I want to say I've got two little pieces of advice is it's always going to take longer than you expect. I, I've never experienced delivering a migration on time, on debt, like on what was estimated. So just always account it's going to take longer than you ever expected. And then I think just getting back to really spending that initial time, uh, I think that is the most important thing is spend as much time up front planning and investigating. When I mean investigating is really looking at the old code base. If you're, you know, migrating to a new framework, there's a lot of this old business logic that has been written in the previous and trying to really understand why that's there. Does it need to move over and just really truly understand the code base before you make the hop over to the new one? The answer is yes. You will need to move that code over some way, somehow. There is an edge case that uses that code and you're going to find out about it sooner or later. Yeah, and I Probably think it's, later. It's, it's really understanding why it's there. I think a lot of it is you're just like, oh yeah, it's there. Do we really need this? But it's really understanding, yes, you likely do, but also why is it there and what's it doing, um, which takes a lot. You could have been the one who wrote it years ago uh, and and you don't remember. Uh, So it takes a lot of work and investigating up front. Day before launch always, oh yeah, I know why I wrote that now. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Chesterson's Fence is the, the conceptual idea of like, there's a fence in the middle of the road People look at it like, that's a stupid reason to have a fence there, but someone put a fence there for a reason. And you walking by and not seeing the purpose doesn't mean there isn't one. And it's something I think about a lot in software because I'm like, who wrote this code? Oh, I did. Again, that's where testing helps though because testing gives you intent. Yeah. uh, And you can test that versus like, or common your code. That's my number one piece of advice. Comment your code. It will make migrations easier because you know what you were trying to do in the past. That has been some of your logical advice on many episodes. I feel like, yeah, comment code. Get a tattoo right Yeah, comment your code. That is, Jem's going to get that on his forehead tattooed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At the end of each episode, we love to share pics of things that we found interesting and would like to share with our listeners. Let's go around the table and share our picks for today. Ryan, you want to start it off? Sure. So my first pick is my Roomba. Uh, we picked one up on Amazon Prime Day, and I've heard all kinds of bad things about them, but I absolutely loved my Roomba, or I love my Roomba. I didn't love it. It's still around. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, it just roams around my house and picks up all of my dog hair. I have a golden retriever, so it sheds a lot. So my house has been a lot cleaner since I've gotten this Roomba. So that's my first pick. And my second pick is a blog post for conditional types in jo- TypeScript. Uh, it's a, a really eye-opening uh, read about some of the power that's actually hidden inside a TypeScript. So uh, if you really want to learn some deep, advanced TypeScript, check out this article. It's from 2018. Uh, it's not super current, but it's still super powerful. Hey, Ryan, do you on your Roomba, do you have like a Bluetooth speaker or anything? Like, I don't know if you've seen the <laughs> Parks and Rec episode, but that's totally what it made me think of. You need DJ Roomba. No, but my kids did name it Pancake. So we have <laughs> That's a, a pretty good name, actually. Floating around our house, cleaning cleaning my floors, yes. <laughs> Micah, what do you have for us? Uh, my pick would be React Rally uh, coming up. Uh, it's something I'll be going to along with uh, several people from Netflix. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for giving me your ticket. I'm um, looking forward to getting to experience the, the great conference. Yeah, it's a fun conference. Probably still one of my favorite conferences. Jem, what kind of picks do you have for us? Uh, I've got three picks today. The first one is by uh, Patrick McKenzie, aka Patio Eleven, for people on Hacker News or wherever. He's pretty pretty famous. Uh, but it's on how brokerages make money, which is really fascinating because 
once you get up there in age where you actually have brokerage accounts and 401ks and all that stuff, uh, it's it's really insightful on how are these banks offering like 3% interest and what's why doesn't everybody do that? And I don't know. It, it's a good deep dive with examples on how like a lot of the finance world makes money, which a lot of us just don't think about, but it's happening all around us all the time. Uh, the second article, the second pick is uh, it's an article on HBR, uh, Harvard Business Review, called "Managing Yourself." Um, just a really insightful article that changed the way like I approach meetings, and it's more like you should be the just as you should be in a, in a meeting to or manage people in a way to be a force multiplier and not just like here's my two cents, I'm out. Uh, in fact, you should probably hold back from giving your opinion most of the time, especially if you're a leader, because it can be overvalued. You should ask questions that force people to, or get people to think in a certain way or to answer the questions that you have. But um, it's just a really good article. It's pretty short, but everybody should take a look at it in terms of just like how you communicate with other people. Like what what is your end goal? Is it to be right or is it to solve the problem? And I think my approach historically has been like, I want to be right, but I really should be, <laughs> as, as we all do, but... Like, I really should be solving nah. the problem. <laughs> I've never seen that, Jim. <laughs> uh, and my third pick for Valley Silicon, that's the uh, part of the show where I pick things that are just ludicrously expensive and only exist because we have too much money. Uh, my pick is actually, um, it is an ice cube maker. It's called Forge. Yeah. Micah, how much would you pay for a clear ice cube maker? Ooh, how clear? Ooh, yeah. So it is, it is super clear. It's super clear. I don't know. Like just throw out, throw out a number for Probably 500 bucks. Ooh. Ooh. Big spender. OG Ryan, what would you spend on a clear ice cube maker? Like window clear. See right through them. Clear, as clear as you can get water. Yeah. 250. 250. I'm going to go with the like $30 tray is just good <laughs> enough. That's probably too expensive I for agree. an ice cream. I agree. $30 tray. I have Unless a $2 tray. be like, this, this drink has a clear ice cube. This one has a cloudy ice cube and then makes the drink taste Yeah, but different. think about it at a party. You just pull out this ice cube and be like, look how clear so my cool. ice cubes are. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure That's everyone's going to remember alone. that as I'm serving them alcohol. They're not going to yeah. remember that damn ice cube. Uh, so there is an ice cube maker called Forge. And, and it runs for the low, low price of $1,300 for an ice cube maker. And that is why it's my pick for Valley Silicon. To be clear... It only makes one ice cube at a time. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, that's messed up. Yeah, hopefully no one in this room ordered one. $1,300 ice cube is what I'm hearing. Yeah. It's reached 293% of its goal in 30 days. Exactly. People, People have, have too, too much, much money. money. <laughs> it's just like, I, I Anyways, I'll save my rant. Well, oh, that is impressive, though. That is, that is a pretty clear, large... Don't, don't encourage people to buy one. Like, <laughs> you know, anyways, it's pretty cool, but, you know... I feel like this would be, if Jem was to pick this, this would be a Valley Silicon. I don't think it's a super expensive thing, but Jem's not a big fan of home automation. But I realize I've never picked this one before, but I'm a huge fan of the Wemo light switches. I would honestly replace every light switch in my house with them. It's amazing. You just replace the existing light switch and now you have a smart light switch. Uh, you can have dimmers, you can have the three-way lights, you're pretty much set. So I highly recommend Wemo light switches. There's a great sale on Wemos on Prime Day. There you go. You should have been like Ryan. I was right on top of it. I love yeah. love my Wemos as well. There you go. Gem needs to get on board. You all are going to get hacked so soon. I read security bulletins on like. Oh yeah, wait devices, till my Roomba comes and attacks me in the middle so of the night. I, I also do home automation, but I use uh, a home assistant, and that's all local, no cloud. Uh, so I use VPN into my house, uh, make sure I, uh, if I do need to activate something like that, I 
I'm the only one that can do it. So that's smart. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people will never do that. I mean, you're gonna be hacked. It's, ine- it's inevitable. It's, oh wow, uh, they can turn off my lights. Woo! They can unlock your door. Yeah, that, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Before we end the episode, I want to thank Micah for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on the episode. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, on Twitter at Micah Ransdell and at uh, Netflix. Come come sign up and and leave your feedback. Nice. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front End Happy Hour podcast on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And you can follow us on Twitter at FrontEndHH. Any last words? No ice cubes here? I got nothing this time.